When I was growing up, my favorite grandparent was my grandma Ruth. She was a very kind and gracious woman. I was a very loud, boisterous, rowdy, and often disobedient grandson. And yet she always treated me with a lot of love. Grandma Ruth was a very special person in my life. She died when I was 10, and her funeral was the first one I ever had attended. Now, by age 10, I I knew that people died. I knew that people were sad when loved ones died. But nothing in my life up to that point had prepared me to deal with death personally. And so I was shocked to see my dad. My dad, who had always been this rock of strength. And there he was sobbing with grief at the death of his beloved mother. I looked at pictures of my grandma Ruth and I knew I'd never see her again. There was pain in that loss. It hurt. And it hurt in a way that that no book, no teacher, no parent ever could fully describe. You see, we can't learn about loss and grief secondhand. Some things in life must be experienced in order to be understood. Things like death. And then once we do understand the impact of death, then we come to realize its finality because people who die do not come back to life. That's just the way it works. And so think about this. If it's hard to understand death and the impact of death before we've actually encountered it, then how hard is it to prepare people to understand resurrection? Someone who conquers death. That's an immense challenge. It's the immense challenge that Jesus faces as he gets ever closer to the end of his earthly life because Jesus is going to defy what is normal. He's going to defy what people understand as reality. He's going to die and then return to life. And somehow he needs to get his followers to believe that this actually can happen. Jesus tackles that challenge by talking about resurrection. He does some teaching about it. But he knows that words are not enough. For his followers to understand the reality-altering event of Easter, it's not enough to hear that death can be conquered. They need to see that death can be conquered. So shortly before the end of his life, Jesus provides a real-life experience where people can get a glimpse of what he soon will go through. He allows people to participate in a resurrection preview. And this preview experience involves a man named Lazarus. Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha, live in a village called Bethany near Jerusalem. And these three people are very close to Jesus. They love Jesus. And Jesus loves them. And one day, Lazarus gets sick. Very sick. It's more than a cold. It is a life-threatening illness. Mary and Martha are deeply concerned about the welfare of their brother, so they send a messenger to Jesus to tell him what's going on with Lazarus. 
And that's where we pick up the story, the story of a resurrection preview recorded in the book of John chapter 11, and we're going to dive in at verses 3 to 4. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. That's a reference to Lazarus. And when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now, imagine we were there, and we heard Jesus make this statement. We probably would begin to wonder how his words might actually come true. And if we'd been hanging out with Jesus for a while, then based on prior experience, we might conclude, aha, Jesus is going to go to Bethany and heal Lazarus. And when he does that, he'll get the glory, and Lazarus won't die. His words will come true. That would be a very logical and erroneous conclusion to draw in this case. It would be erroneous because God has a bigger purpose for this situation than simply taking care of Lazarus. You see, God usually does have a bigger purpose than simply dealing with the problems or concerns of one individual. And that is true way more often than we realize. Because it's so easy for us to become consumed by our own issues, by the problems of our own lives. I think that's true for these people. Lazarus, no doubt, is concerned about his health. Mary and Martha, they actually fear for his life. And Jesus is concerned about the welfare of his friend. Yet there's more at stake here than just the health of Lazarus. And God will deal appropriately with Lazarus. And at the same time, he'll deal appropriately with other issues. And that is true for Lazarus in this circumstance, and it's true for us because God is always working out his purposes in our lives, and at the same time, he's working out his purposes in the lives of others. God works in multiple ways, on multiple layers, all the time. I think of my my friends Robert and Christina. And they bought a new house and moved into a new neighborhood because they wanted to be closer to this really excellent school for their children. Now, that's a good thing. That's a good purpose for a move. But God had a bigger purpose. They ended up developing a very close friendship with their next-door neighbors. A wonderful family, but a family that was far from God. And as a result of that friendship, over time, they were able to connect that family with Jesus. You see, there was a bigger purpose to their relocation than they even knew. And they were able to discover that purpose because they were looking for it. And so it occurs to me that if we take a new job, if we move into a neighborhood, if we join a new club, if we start attending a new school, that God probably has a bigger purpose that goes beyond just meeting our needs. And if we're paying attention, He'll show us how we can be part of accomplishing his purposes. So I think there's a question that you and I always need to keep in front of ourselves. What bigger purpose does God have in mind for me in the midst of the situations that I face in my life today? Am I looking? Well, we're going to see God answer that question in a very distinctive way in the life of Lazarus. 
And I believe that's why Jesus makes this comment here in verse 4. He wants his followers to be on the alert. He wants them to be looking to see what God is up to as the events unfold. And as the story proceeds, we quickly realize that God's purposes are in fact different than what we might logically expect. As I said earlier, we might expect Jesus to heal Lazarus. And yet, what happens next is that Jesus does not hustle over to Bethany to make his friend well. Instead, he stays right where he is and he hangs out for two whole days. He deliberately waits And then he announces to his followers that Lazarus is dead. And furthermore, he says, I'm glad I wasn't there. What do we make of that? How can Jesus be glad? He's glad because in this case, he's not planning to heal Lazarus. And if he'd been in Bethany, I think he would have been highly tempted to do just that. How could Jesus stand there and watch his beloved friend die and not intervene? Particularly if Mary and Martha are standing there next to him, imploring him to intervene. They would have pleaded with him, Jesus, heal Lazarus. But that's not what Jesus intends to accomplish in this case. And see, this is sometimes, I think, what what causes a problem. When we have a need, we go to Jesus and we expect him to meet the need in the way we want, in the timing that we want, and how we want. But Jesus doesn't always give us what we want. And sometimes he waits because his purposes go beyond our preferences. One Bible commentator says it this way, Jesus does respond to every cry for help, but in his own time and on his own terms. Neither enemies nor friends set his agenda or control his actions. Jesus accomplishes his purposes, his way, in his timing. And so here he waits He waits. Lazarus dies. And yet, yet Jesus said this sickness will not end in death. So what do we make of that? Is Jesus a liar? Did he somehow just get it wrong? And the answer is no. The death of Lazarus tells us that this event is not yet over. Because Jesus told his disciples that death would not be the end of this particular story. For those who are paying attention, for those who take Jesus at his word, there is more to come. A resurrection awaits. And so Jesus deliberately delays. It's a delay based on God's timing. And then he heads off to Bethany. And when he arrives, Lazarus already is in the grave. Burials and funerals were very different in the first century Middle East than the way we do them in our culture. First of all, burials took place as soon as possible after death because bodies 
were not preserved in the way that we do it today, and they would begin to decompose quickly in the climate of that area. And when we mourn someone's loss and we honor their life, we tend to view the burial kind of as the culmination of the official time of mourning, not the Jews. Families and friends would gather and mourn for at least seven days after the burial. And during this time, community members would come by and they would mourn with you. And they would offer words of sympathy and encouragement. Jesus shows up in the middle of this week of mourning, four days after Lazarus has been entombed. And this provides another clue to God's bigger purpose. You see, Jesus deliberately arrives when there's a crowd of people around, and it's a crowd of people who are grieving and who believe, based on all prior knowledge and all prior experience, that Lazarus is beyond life and beyond hope. Jesus is going to change their view of reality by giving them an entirely new experience. And this is where we get to the heart of the matter. This is where we see God work out his bigger purpose in the life of Lazarus. Jesus journeys to Bethany. He gets close to the village. Martha hears that he has arrived, and she rushes out to greet him. And we pick up the story in verse 21 of chapter 11. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. Listen to this. But I know, I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. I think this is amazing. Lazarus is dead. He's buried. Yet Martha has not completely given up hope. And she says here in verse 22, Even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. She's making it clear that her faith in Jesus transcends her knowledge. It transcends her prior experiences. Her faith in Jesus transcends the circumstances of this moment. I find myself wondering, does your faith look like that? Does my faith look like that? In the midst of a job loss or a badly broken relationship, do we trust Jesus more than our circumstances? If we're struggling in school or we don't get admitted to the college of our choice, do we trust Jesus more than our circumstances? In the midst of financial hardship or the infirmities of aging, do we trust Jesus more than our circumstances? Martha does. Martha does. She knows that when Jesus is present, all things are possible. She knows that he shapes the future because he is the source of life. And Jesus emphasizes this by talking to her about resurrection. He tells her that Lazarus will rise again, and he means it literally. It's actually about to happen. Yet Martha responds with a theological statement about the next life, not this life. Jesus actually is talking about both. 
He means that Lazarus is going to be restored to life now, and then at some point in the future, when he dies again for the last time, then he'll be raised into eternal life, just as every believer will be. And this is only possible because of Jesus. He's the one who gives us life. He's the one who gives us new life. He's the one who makes it possible for physical death to not be final. So we can enjoy life beyond the grave. And Martha is able to embrace this belief because she trusts Jesus totally. She affirms that he is the promised Messiah, the Son of God who is working out his purposes for all of his followers both now and in the life to come. Martha has great faith. It's a faith that amazes me. It's a faith that humbles me. And I'm amazed and humbled that in this incredible moment of grief and loss with her brother in the grave, she's able to look beyond her pain and proclaim a faith in Jesus that transcends her circumstances. If only we all could have faith like this. It occurs to me that the Martha we see here This is so very different than the Martha we encountered four weeks ago when we explored an earlier incident in her life. We saw Martha on a night when Jesus came to visit in her home, and we saw Martha at her worst. She was presumptuous. She was prideful. And in fact, at one point, she even demanded that Jesus do her bidding. We don't see any of that here. What we see is humility and trust. No hint of pride. And the contrast between those two incidents reminds me that we should never stereotype someone based on one bad moment in life. Like all people, Martha has bad moments and good moments. And here we see her at her best modeling of faith that we would be wise to emulate. This is a profound conversation. After this conversation where she gives voice to her deep faith in Jesus, then she goes and finds her sister Mary and she brings her sister Mary to Jesus. And then as the story continues, in verse 33, we see Jesus express some of the deepest emotion of his life. When Jesus saw her weeping, that's a reference to Mary who has just come to greet him. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind men have kept this man from dying? And Jesus, once more deeply troubled, came to the tomb. Jesus knew that Lazarus would die. He knew that in just a moment, he's going to restore Lazarus to life. Yet he cannot simply harden his heart to grief. He's surrounded by family and friends of Lazarus who all are crying and wailing with deep, deep sadness. 
Jesus feels it too because Lazarus is his friend. So Jesus cries. Yet his emotions in this moment go far beyond tears. We're told here that he's deeply moved and even troubled. And the wording in the original Greek text implies that Jesus feels a deep ache within himself. It implies that Jesus might even issue a groan of anguish. And it implies that in this moment, Jesus even feels some anger. Anger. What would Jesus be angry about? I think he's angry at death. He's angry and troubled by the pain and sorrow caused by death. Earlier in the book of John, Jesus says Satan, who he calls a thief, Satan comes to steal and kill and destroy. Satan is the one who robs us of life and robs us of the joy of life. Jesus, though, comes to give us life and to give it to us abundantly. So the pain of death only is temporary if we trust in Jesus because he resurrects every one of his followers into new life beyond the grave. And in this moment, Jesus is deeply moved because he is surrounded by hurting people. And more than anything, he wants to remove that hurt. He wants to remove the sting of death. And he will. Because he is the resurrection and the life. And I hope you see here the tenderness of Jesus. We see that Jesus cares. Our God is not heartless. He has emotions and he feels things deeply. He cares for Lazarus and his sisters. He cares for you and he cares for me. And I love the fact that Jesus is not afraid to display his emotions. However, and this is really important, his emotions never control him, which is what sometimes happens to us. So Jesus is able to work through his emotions. He's able to push past his emotions. And because of that, then he's able to proceed and to accomplish God's greater, bigger purpose. He approaches the tomb. And now we're going to see his earlier statement come true. The story is not yet over because the sickness of Lazarus will not end with death. Verse 38. Jesus comes to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he's been there four days expecting that the body has already started to deteriorate. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When when he'd said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. 
Lazarus is buried in a tomb similar to the one that Jesus soon will occupy. It's a cave with a stone rolled across the entrance to seal the doorway. Jesus asks for this stone to be removed, and then he prays. He directs his attention toward God the Father, letting everyone know that God is the source of power for everything that's about to happen. We need to notice, though, that this prayer is not a request. It's a prayer of thanks. Jesus thanks the Father for what he's about to do to give glory to the Son. And then without any hocus-pocus or incantations, without any of the histrionics like we see from all the TV preachers, Jesus commands Lazarus to leave his tomb. It's the same kind of command that he issues to calm a storm. There's no show. This is not a form of entertainment. Jesus just speaks into his creation, and creation responds. It is a simple display of the raw power of God. And even though Lazarus is dead, he responds. The crowd sees a dead man walking, walking out of a tomb where he's been sealed up for four long days. How would you respond if you were there? I know I would gasp. I feel goosebumps running up and down my arms. Lazarus was dead. Now he's alive. It's unbelievable. Yet it's true. The dead can come back to life. The dead can be raised through the power of God. Oh, it's unbelievable. And yet it's true. I can't imagine just standing by watching that matter-of-factly. It's an unreal experience, yet it's so unreal that I'm sure some people there would not believe what they see. They would doubt their own eyes. They may think that Lazarus is a spirit rather than a human being who has been returned to flesh and blood. And I think that's why Jesus doesn't remove the grave clothes himself. He tells others to do it. You see, when those people go and they touch Lazarus physically, they'll be able to confirm that he is, in fact, flesh and blood once again, restored to life. Try and imagine you're one of those people wrapping him. (laughs) You approach this man who's come out of a tomb, he's in grave clothes, you start to unpeel these things. And as a faithful Jew, you'd probably do it with some trepidation, and here's why. The ancient rabbis taught that a dead body needed to be identified within three days. Because after that, the decay of death would be far enough along to make identification impossible. So at four days, in the natural order of things, Lazarus already should be physically disfigured. And so you would unwrap that cloth, wondering what you're going to find. But you won't find a disfigured person. That doesn't happen with resurrection. That's part of the miracle. Resurrection involves a complete restoration. By waiting this long, Jesus shows that no one is beyond the reach of the God of creation. 
and a man that they expected to be literally falling apart is whole once again. And then if God can restore Lazarus to life after four days, he certainly can restore Jesus to life after three days, which he's going to do in the very near future. And that's where the story ends. It ends rather abruptly, but there's no more to tell. Lazarus doesn't go on the talk show circuit and describe his out-of-body experience. He doesn't write a book telling people about all the preview glimpses he had of heaven. He doesn't make it all about him, which is what we so often do. Because God did something powerful in him, but he's not the point of the story. He's not the purpose of the event. The purpose is to display the glory of God by demonstrating that God has power over death and that God has the power to restore life. And so God's glory is on display here through the resurrection of Lazarus to give people a preview of the coming resurrection of Jesus. God did this because some things must be experienced in order to be understood. This moment creates the greater opportunity for understanding when Easter Sunday arrives. And God graciously has preserved this experience in the Bible so that we get to see this resurrection preview. I believe that it's vital for us to understand and embrace the power of resurrection because of the power that death holds over us. Now, young people, they don't think much about death. I certainly didn't when I was young. The older we get, the more likely we are to contemplate death. The truth is, though, that whether we think about it or not, death comes to us all. Death is universal, and it has the power to take your life and mine. And that's why in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, the Apostle Paul describes death as the last enemy. We can overcome a lot of things in this life, but we cannot defeat death. That's reality. Resurrection. Resurrection redefines reality by demonstrating the power of God over death. Yet it's hard to believe. It's hard to accept. That's why God raised Lazarus from the dead. To give people a preview. To give them an experience so they could believe in the resurrection of Jesus that would take place on Easter Sunday because that is the resurrection that changes everything. Resurrection demonstrates to the world that God has defeated the final enemy. And his victory over death enables you and me to live with hope in this life and in the next. We can live with hope because of the power of God. The power of resurrection. The resurrection power that is at work in the mind and the heart and the life of every follower of Jesus. It's true. It's real. It exists. And if we believe it, then 
let's live in that power each day.